Welcome to another episode of The Zag. Eric Kosob here, excited to reconnect with 2015 fellow David Burke. He's got a lot of interesting projects going on, a lot to talk about, so let's not keep him waiting. You're listening to The Zag. Let's get to it. All right, David, where, where in the world are you today, right now? Oh, I'm in Los Angeles, California, the one of the best places to be. <laughs> Which part of town do you live in again? I live in Westwood near UCLA. Nice. Uh, listen, I've enjoyed reading your your articles posted on Huffington Post uh, over the last year. So how did you get connected with them to a point that they would let you print stuff? How does that work? Well, the same way that anyone gets ahead in life, Eric, by having a connection who helps you do it. Um, I was lucky enough to know someone who had kind of been involved in starting the Huffington Post. And so she was able to kind of connect me with them and say, hey, here's someone I think might be a good addition or a good columnist. So honestly, it was, you know, by knowing the right person. And I almost feel bad for people who have a lot to say, but don't have that kind of connection. And we'll talk a little bit about what's in the articles in a minute, uh, but just in general, what's the, the feedback been like? Do you get data about how many people have, have read it or shared it? How does that work? You know, I don't get data like that. I mean, I do see on some of the columns, they'll show like the likes or the, you know, retweets and things. And if it, the one I had that got on the front page, of course, had thousands of likes and things like that. And I do also from time to time receive emails, you know, in response to columns, either people who are you know, thankful or people who are upset, but I'm grateful to get feedback regardless of the tone. And then would you say you're an actual writer and that's your job? Or how do you answer that question when people ask you what you do for a living? That's a complicated question, but I tell them that I I make a living doing, um, you know, legal LSAT teaching and apartment management, but that my you know passion is campaign finance reform. And so Citizens Take Action, the nonprofit I helped start in the past uh, in 2016, is a volunteer-run organization at this point, but we're hoping to turn it into something that could be a paying gig in the future. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So big money in politics and getting rid of big money in politics is your, your your jam right now. What about that issue when there's a ton of other issues too to be fired up about really spoke to you? I think it's that when I worked on other issues, you know, be it animal rights or education, or uh, if you even look at other issues that you're passionate about, like healthcare or tax reform, they all seem to be traced back to big money in politics in one way or another. And it seemed like no matter what progress you're trying to make kind of when corporations unions or you know very wealthy individuals have undue influence it can prevent that kind of progress so i view it as kind of the issue that we need to fix in order to fix all those other issues and then in the most recent election cycle there's probably tons of choices that would lift up what you're what you're talking about but one or what are two local races that you feel like really exemplify the problem? Well, I thought that in the recent, you know, cycle, of course, the school board race in my district was, you know, it was record breaking. I think it was over 11 million of outside spending from groups that weren't affiliated with the candidates. And uh, I think that was a great example um, because, you know, living in the district, unfortunately, I was treated to just a mailbox full of garbage from these outside groups. It was more mail than I've ever received in connection with any election, like federal, presidential, anything of that nature. 
So then when you do have that much mail, do you feel like the impact is lessened? Because it's, it's, at some point, it's really comical to see what kind of silliness will be in your mailbox each day. Uh, do you feel like it then should be less of a concern? Because look, if people are going to waste their money that way, what's the, the big deal? Because people are going to vote the way they want to vote anyway. I feel like it's challenging because on the, if there's just one side that's filling your box that side has a clear advantage. But in this case, where both sides were spending money, you know, and accusations were just being flung back and forth, I do feel it's like it sort of cancels each other out okay. and almost can yeah. have a negative impact. I ran into people who told me, you know, they weren't voting for this candidate because they sent too much mail. Hmm. So then in terms of school board races in the future, really any kind of race. Yeah. What are the systemic things that you'd want to see happen that are realistic in the short term? And what are the big picture pie in the, pie in the sky things you'd want to see? Happen? So the short term realistic things that people can put their energy towards are local publicly financed elections. And, you know, I think we're seeing this in some states and some cities, like I think Berkeley and LA City already has some level of public financing, but supporting those measures was one way to kind of level the playing field a little more and keep the focus on the issues. Um, so that's kind of a local level reform. And then of course the big kahuna is a constitutional amendment to you know overturn Citizens United and Buckley v. Vallejo and really decades of terrible Supreme Court precedent that has allowed big money to dominate our political system. So when you talk to people about this issue, how many folks do you think would agree with the statement that uh, money is speech and should be protected as such? I don't think a lot of people agree with it off the bat, but when you explain it to them a little bit, you know, people see more of a gray area because, you know, if I spend money to put up a sign supporting a candidate, you know, that money sort of helps enable speech. And most people, you know, agree that money helps enable speech. But what they don't like is when the Supreme Court sort of equates money as speech and feels and uh, kind of issues decisions indicating that it can't be regulated just like speech can't be regulated in certain ways. So when, what, what frame makes the most uh, impact on people as you're trying to convince them of your point of view? You know, I'm still trying to figure that out because most people are <laughs> okay. already there in terms of thinking big money in politics is a problem. We don't have to get people there. The challenge is how do you mobilize people and get their support and volunteer hours for a cause that, is very important, but never seems very urgent. Um, you know, there's, you call your congressperson about tax reform, healthcare, you know, transgender rights, any other issue of the moment, that's sort of easier for people to latch onto. But this is a long-term battle and it's very difficult. It's kind of equivalent to saying, how do you get a teenager to start eating right when it might cause problems down the road or they don't feel the effects of eating poorly right now. That's one of the biggest challenges in the movement. And then how would you advise a progressive candidate? So say someone running in a local race against a Republican or a conservative, whomever, uh, how would you advise them to structure their campaign so they could still be really competitive on public financing if their opponent is taking money from all sorts of places that would, in theory, give them an advantage? Not all candidates would have a public financing option, but what they could do is at least make some sort of pledge or draw some sort of line 
as in, you know, I'm only taking candidate or money from individuals or only up to this amount, you know, set a rule that's a little higher ethical standard than the kind of legal requirements. Um, but another thing I'd say is progressive candidates really need to call out their opponents on this issue and distinguish themselves because it's an issue that over 70% of both Republicans and Democrats want big money out of politics, but Republican candidates conventionally don't support the cause. So it's a good way to kind of draw a powerful distinction. So then going back to that school board race in your district, uh, both candidates, uh, as far as I could tell, were really displeased with the amount of money that was dumped in on their behalfs. And I also felt both candidates at some point had a talking point related to, I, I can't control, I can't stop it. I'm not affiliated with these groups. I'm not uh, collaborating with these groups. It's just happening. What's your response to something like that when there really is uh, almost a, 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 an entirely third-party entity that's going to do what they want to do regardless? I mean, that shows exactly why we need to devote special attention to the issue. And, you know, Nick and Steve Zimmer, you know, when they were in the respective race, they both have so many other things to focus on. And I'm sure after the race, they have so many other things to worry about. But until they kind of speak to their constituencies about this and make it a priority, we're not going to solve this problem until we prioritize it. So I'd say if you want to stop it, join the long-term fight, you know, to fight to stop it. But until then, complaining about it, you know, is only going to do so much. Yeah. When we come back, I want to ask David about some some national things. And then at the end, uh, he's going to explain to us the, the deep, dark realities of the wedding industrial <laughs> complex. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Zag. All right. Give me some of your perspectives on what's happening nationally. What do you think is going to happen in Alabama? Oh, Boy, I don't know if I'm a very good prognosticator. I mean, maybe I should say I think what will happen is what would disturb me. So in that vein, I would assume that Roy Moore will succeed. And then when you're looking at national races for, for the House and Senate in 2018, I mean, especially looking at California, right, with so many up-for-grab seats and Republicans having to defend a lot of unpopular policies, if you were advising candidates, what message would you tell them to hit home the most that you feel like would fire up the most folks to vote for them? You know, I don't know if it'd be a distinct message, but I would advise candidates that they needed a unique, clear identity beyond just not Trump or not Republicans. Um, because I think too many Democrats are focusing on being kind of a party of resistance when we should be a party with good ideas and clear ideas who stands for certain values that most people agree with. So I would advise them to have a very clear identity and make sure people know who they are, not just who they aren't. I was trying to think back for the Obama years, I and mean, clearly the GOP had decided they were going to be a party of resistance. Looking back yourself, do you feel like they they had an, enough separation from the resistance idea that their their platforms and policies were still compelling enough, or was it just such a fluke thing that they were a resistor and then just happened to have Trump drop in their laps and they happened to kind of ride in behind well, it? Well, I think they were a party of resistance, but... Before that, they were a party that was well-defined in terms of their values. And I think Democrats have not had that level of definition for a while, um, which is a you know an important difference. And who do you got in 2020? Oh, I don't know if my guess is any better than anyone else's. Um, 
you know, scarily, if you look at the odds online, you know, people like The Rock or Kid Rock are right up there with a lot of actual potential candidates. So I don't know if there's any front runner in my opinion. Yeah, I've asked this question to other folks on the Zag before, but if you had a candidate who was Dwayne The Rock Johnson and he was running Bernie's platform, would you vote for him? I mean, it depends on who he's running against, I suppose. Um, I've been working on an article titled Why Celebrities Should Not Run for President or Be President. Oh. And okay, it really the, goes to, I mean, the, the gist is The Rock or Kid Rock or you know Kanye West or whomever could surround themselves with all the brightest people. But the problem is you have to actually be an expert yourself. You know, you have to be able to tell the difference between the the brightest people who might be giving you competing options and viewpoints. So I'd very reluctantly vote for The Rock, but you know, if his opponent was dismal enough, it might come to that. Yeah, makes sense. All right, let me ask you some rapid fire questions on on your upcoming. Well, not upcoming, so... Eric. They've happened. Oh, it's done. Right. It's done. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you were locked and loaded. My my mistake. So, okay, give me the the post mortem in the best way possible. Post most mortem can happen. Um, how long were you engaged? I was engaged for? since April, so it was a relatively short, about six month engagement. And was that a conscious choice or logistically dictated? How did it end up being six? Yeah, months? it was a conscious choice. We thought it, you know, made sense. Courtney and I, my wife, both felt, uh, you know, we were. We had found someone special and there was no need to kind of dilly dally. So we got on with it. And you guys get married here in Los Angeles? Uh, We got married in Downey, which is a suburb of Los Angeles for people who don't know. And we got married at the home I grew up in, in my parents' backyard. I like it. And at some point, were there other options on the table and you eventually settled on that? Or was that always the plan? That was basically the plan. You know, I'm lucky enough that Courtney shares my ideals of kind of frugality. And we thought, you know, it wouldn't make sense to spend thousands or tens of thousands of dollars on a venue when my parents had a nice backyard. And then we had to, you know, just deal with them instead of a whole kind of slew of coordinators trying to extract more money from us. Yeah. So that's something I asked about. Yeah. What one or two stories stick out to you from that experience of trying to figure out what to spend money on and make choices. Um, about. I would just say overall the pressure, you know, I feel like the wedding industrial complex places a lot of pressure on people like to meet a certain expectation, but time and again, I felt like we did things in a unique way and it worked out wonderfully. Like we had an all vegan wedding. Um, and a lot of the guests, tried this vegan cheese, had no idea it was vegan. And it was just a great way to kind of make sure nobody's allergy requirements or dietary restrictions were violated, but do something that was a little more unique. I like it. And speaking of vegan stuff, give me your latest uh, best places to eat that are vegan. In Los oh Angeles. boy, let's see. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, there's a Thai place called, I'm going to bungle the name, but it's spelled S-A-D-H-T-A or something along those lines. It's on Lincoln and they have some excellent vegan Thai food. And has there been any progress? I was talking to Jay about this when she was on about uh, the the perfect vegan burger that would fool 100% of the people 100% of the time. So I feel like it's the holy grail of veganism. You can <laughs> capture capture the, the, the cheeseburger that you can't tell the difference on, then doors will open and angels will sing. Is there any well, progress that on that front? Beyond Burger that Whole Foods sells in like the actual meat section is probably the closest to date. So we're getting, 
we're getting a lot better. And by the way, the advances that have been made in vegan cheese in the past decade are staggering. You wouldn't believe it. Okay. Nice. And is that all types of cheese or certain types? Where, where There's they... certain brands. Um, I think Follow Your Heart is a very good brand. And Whole Foods kind of has the, you know, fancier vegan cheeses that are pricier, but, you know, well worth a, an occasional indulgence. I like it. Last thing, we're going to announce the 2018 fellows in a couple of weeks here sometime in mid-December. What do you remember about your your 2015 fellows experience? Uh, honestly, just getting to know the other members in the class. And it was a big learning experience for me. Um, you know, it was a I was surrounded by a group of very diverse people from different backgrounds who, by and large, were not, you know, straight white men. And so I learned a lot from our class. I'm very grateful for that kind of eye-opening experience. Yeah, well, we're grateful to have you in the alum community. Grateful that you came on the Zag today. Thanks for everyone who listened. You can find all episodes, and there's a lot, over 20 now, in the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. Catch us on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. We'll have a few more episodes this month before people head off for the holidays, so stay tuned. We'll catch you soon.